rather frequently, but they would repent. They would pray once in a while. They would give some thought to the good of their soul every now and then, uh, but they needed to make progress, okay? And, uh, and so the, the person in that first mansion was still quite weak, still very attached to the world and so on. Remember the reptiles that came in to the mansion, into the uh, castle when the moat was, was uh, put down, you know, for people to cross over, okay? So what is a person like in the second mansion, okay? These are basically good souls. They struggle valiantly against mortal sin, however, because they still have so many attachments to occasions of sin, persons, places, and things that lead them into sin, they will fall, you know, occasionally. Not as much as in the first mansion. Um, and uh, they do sincerely repent. Why? Because their love is beginning to grow deeper. Remember when we looked at St. Bernard when he described love, he said then before conversion, we had that carnal love, I love myself for my own sake. But now someone who's beginning to feel God's presence, the need for God, okay? I begin to love God, but for my sake, okay? Still a lot of me involved in there, but I do need him, and so people will turn to God out of that need. And so a lot of people in the second mansion are motivated by need for God. And remember I told you, that means they're not very consistent because there are times when they feel they don't need God. And so they kind of drift away for a while, come back, and, uh, you know. But as they go through this second stage, um, they will begin to deepen their love for God, okay? May even start to reach the point where they begin to love God for his sake. But that's a big, big step. They still commit deliberate venial sins. Why? Because they don't see venial sin as very important, you know? They're, they're not sensitive to spiritual life, to the spiritual life, to God's love. They're not sensitive to that, okay? So they fall back constantly into venial sins, maybe bad temper, uh, gossiping, uh, um, maybe even some more... Uh, uh, serious faults, and so on. Um, they go to the sacraments, especially on big feast days, but they, they're, uh, they will once in a while attend Mass on a, maybe a weekday, but their devotion is not very strong, okay? Um, they're not very faithful, with, for example, reciting the rosary and devotions like that, all right? Uh, prayer is still basically that vocal prayer that we saw in the first mansion, using, you know, uh, prayers that, I, that they recite. Why? Because they don't know God personally yet, okay? They need to grow in that, all right? But, uh, they're, you know, they are making some attempt to begin to meditate. Remember, that's the prayer of the second mansion. So let's take a little look at what St. Teresa says about somebody in that mansion, okay? Um, <clears throat> who arrives at the second mansion? St. Teresa describes people with these qualities. First of all, they have attained the self-knowledge necessary to make progress in the spiritual life. Remember, we ended up that talk this morning. She stresses humility and self-knowledge. We have to know who we are, and we only learn that before God. Hmm? We can put ourselves, we can judge ourselves in comparison to other people, to success, to popularity, to money, to riches, whatever it is, fame, and so on, okay? Those are the wrong norms to judge by. It's Christ who will reveal who we really are. I remember when I was a kid, my father uh, took my brother, my older brother and I down to Lower Manhattan. He worked in Lower Manhattan. And uh, I'll never forget, there's a theater there, it was called the Fun House. And um, there were four mirrors on the front doors of that fun house. If you, if you stood in front of one of them, you looked real tall. If you stood in front of another one, you looked real short. If you stood in front of another one, you looked real fat. And if you stood in front of the other one, you looked real thin. None of those mirrors made you know exactly who you were. They were all distorted. And many times in life, 
we judge ourselves by the wrong standards. The true standard is Christ. What does Christ see me to be? That's why I told you, St. Francis, you know, when people would praise him as a great saint, he said, I am what I am in the sight of God. It's what God sees me to be, that's what I am. Because the day of my judgment, that's what I'm going to be judged on. Okay? So we want to see ourselves as God sees us. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who we looked at, you know, we talked about love this morning. St. Bernard said, you know, and he wrote a, a work from going from humility down to pride. They asked him, why'd you do it that way? Why'd you go from pride to humility? He said, well, you've got to write about what you know better. Hmm? So, <laughs> but he said the first mistake that we make going from humility to pride is we take our eyes off the Lord and what he sees us to be, and we begin to compare ourselves to other people. See, in one person, we look maybe to one side, well, I'm doing better than that guy, <laughs> so pride enters in. Look the other side, that guy's doing better than I am. I get jealous, I'm envious. Hmm? See, and I've lost my peace. Why? Because I took my eyes off the Lord. It's Jesus who tells us who we are. And that's the knowledge that St. Teresa tells us we need. So self-knowledge necessary for progress. Because it's self-knowledge that shows us our sinfulness and our selfishness. Many times we don't see that. You know, we, well, this is part of society. This is the way people act today. But we don't realize that's not the way God wants me to act. That's not the life that Jesus calls me to. See? But if we compare ourselves to those who are very worldly, we may say, well, I'm fitting in. But Jesus doesn't want us to fit into that. He wants us to fit into the life he gave us, he promised. So we need that self-knowledge. It teaches us also about the beauty of a life of virtue. Most people don't think there's much beauty in a life of virtue, yet there is extraordinary beauty in that. Um, we are called to a Christ-likeness. And, uh, and so we begin to see how it is beautiful to follow Christ, but to commit sin, that's an ugliness. And we begin to appreciate the difference, all right, through self-knowledge. <clears throat> See, the, the, what happens to the person in this second mansion is they still lack the resolve to love God fully, even though they realize sin is not good. It's not the, that's not the way I want to go. I want to follow Christ. But remember St. Teresa, she spent 20 years in that fighting that, uh, you know, worldliness that she had gotten herself into. She tried many times to get out of it, but until she made that resolve when she knelt before the picture of Christ and uh, near Mary Magdalene there at the foot of that cross, then she had the resolve. She said, I won't get off my knees until Jesus gives me, you know, the grace to resolve to change my life, okay? And so that's, uh, that's what began to happen there. And, but she was in that struggle for 20 years, all right? And... Um, that was the lukewarmness. She was compromising her life, okay? Um, <clears throat> but these people have taken at least the step to the practice of prayer, okay? They've been praying a little bit, much more than they had before. And St. Teresa insists that people in the second mansion need to learn fidelity in prayer. You know, to pray not just once in a while, not just when we need something, motivated by need of God, but to learn to be faithful in prayer, to pray every day, to pray often, because we, we need God all the time. We should be wanting to love him. See, we've got to reach that point of loving God for his sake, not simply for our sake. When I run to him when I need something, you see, someone once said, God and we are on a seesaw. God's on one side, we're on the other side. When we're down, when we're, when, when we're down, where is God? He's up. Hmm? We run to him when we're down. Hmm? But what happens when we go up, God's down. We don't need him. I'm up. Hmm? And, uh, and so people keep their relationship to God on the, on the, the basis of needing him. And when they don't need him, they often forget about him. 
That's what she is concerned about here. See, prayer helps us to better know ourselves. We learn about our own weaknesses, our need for God's grace and mercy. Prayer teaches us also about God's goodness, that God is good. Hmm? He is ever merciful. He is always filled with love. You know, I'm reading the diary of St. Faustina. I highly recommend that to you. Um, but how she talks about God's mercy, the inconceivable idea, the depth of God's infinite mercy. See? And that's something we need to experience. We need to become convinced that God's mercy is greater than anything we could ever do to offend him. In fact, didn't Jesus often say in that diary, he told St. Faustina, tell the people that the greater the sinner, that person has more of a claim on my mercy. So we should never be afraid to approach the throne of mercy. You know, we need that mercy of God. So prayer, St. Teresa says, is the key to future progress. She said, the door by which we can enter this castle is prayer. And um, the door, she said, is Christ. So when we pray to the Lord, we enter more deeply into that castle, okay? We enter heaven, she said, by a closeness with God. And that's very important. Entering where, remember, Christ is dwelling in the center of the soul in that spiritual castle within. A very important point happens here now, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, and that is the soul, the person begins to hear God. Remember we talked last, I think it was maybe last night, um, the five senses, St. Augustine talked about it. He said, God, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. Then you shone a light and you dispelled my darkness, my blindness. Then you breathed on me and I inhaled that fragrance and I longed for you. Then I tasted and I, I hungered for you. And finally, he said, you touched me and I longed for your peace. Okay. She says in this second stage, she said, this is when the soul begins to hear God. Remember, she said in that first stage, she's described the person as like a deaf mute. Deaf because they can't hear the voice of God and mute because they still don't know how to speak to him, okay? Um, that's why they need those formal prayers, all right? So she said, now the person begins to hear God calling them, okay? From deep within the mansions, they begin to see the light, and um, uh, things are beginning to change, all right? Uh, there's progress being made then person letting go maybe of worldly pa pastimes, honors, and pleasures. And, um, and so now it was because of these things blinding them that they could only see and hear um, very imperfectly, very, in, you know, indistinctly. Okay. Uh, so now they were being pulled in opposite directions. On one hand, they felt an attraction to God. On the other hand, the world still fascinated them. They lack the strength to do God's bidding immediately, resolutely, and without hesitation, okay? But now these spiritual senses are starting to come alive. How does God call these souls? First of all, by he can prompt the person, you know, through external things. For example, um, through sermons. She said she learned so much through sermons. She was inspired through sermons. Through homilies, okay? Uh, remember when she heard the priest talk about you had to die to see God and she was only seven years old so she wanted to go off and be a martyr at that time. Good reading. Remember she had read the letters of St. Jerome and they inspired her. The, the uh, work of St. Gregory on, the, on uh, uh, reflections on the book of Job. Okay? Uh, by the way, that was the thing that gave her a taste for reading scripture. You know, she began to read that, and it, it gave her a real insight into the beauty and importance of Scripture. Okay? Um, also, not only uh, sermons and good reading and so on, conversations with good people. To surround ourselves with good people is important. She also said sometimes through sickness, sometimes through trials. Remember... Um, she lived in Spain a little bit after the time of St. Ignatius Loyola. 
And he remembers Ignatius Loyola was, um, he was a Basque, and uh, he was a very uh, brave man. He was a captain of about uh, 300 soldiers, French, uh, Spanish soldiers, and they were fighting a battle with about 5,000 French soldiers. And um, St. Ignatius was hit by a cannonball which injured his leg, and he spent about a year or two convalescing in his father's castle. Now, he had a very devout sister-in-law who, um, when he was brought back to the castle, he used to like to read all these romance books. So what she did, she threw them all out, and she left him with the book of the life of Christ and the lives of the saints. Now, you know when you get bored, you'll read anything, right? You go, to the, you go to the doctor's office and you pick up the magazine and you start reading the toothpaste commercial in the, in the magazine. You're so bored just to let the time go by. Well, that's what happened to St. Ignatius. Hmm? Uh, he was desperate to read something. He wanted to read those romance you know, books, which gave him a lot of pleasure, uh, but there were none around. So he reluctantly began to read The Life of Christ and the lives of the saints. And he began to notice when he read the, the uh, romance books, he said it gave him a lot of pleasure while he read them, but when he closed the book, he felt empty. But when he read the book on, on Christ and the saints, he said it didn't give him as much pleasure, but he noticed that when he closed the book, he's, his heart was still filled with peace and joy. And so he began to notice this difference you know, going on and on. Then finally, as he was reading the lives of the saints, it dawned on him. And he asked a question, you might say, one of the most important questions we could ever ask ourselves. He was reading about St. Francis, St. Dominic, you know, St. Anthony. He said, if Francis could do it, and Anthony could do it, and Dominic could do it, why can't I do it? And that set him on the stage to become a saint. So sometimes in good reading, we can be profoundly influenced. And that's what St. Teresa said. Another choked even through trials, sickness. The Lord begins to speak to us through that illness. We begin, she learned so much through the suffering of Christ. That helped her, all right? So that's very, very important. The Lord speaking to us in so many, many ways, okay? Um, light was coming into the soul at this point. Another point she stresses is the need for good companions, okay? Choosing the right ones is very important. Remember the old saying, show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are, what you are. And so um, she said that uh, she insisted that evil or even mediocre people should be avoided as friends, not to have close association with them because some bad things can rub off. So that's what she was saying. Need to associate with people who, are, who could lead us to deeper into virtue. And um, uh, she said, associate with good friends. Those, especially people who might be further advanced on the, the way of, of spirituality than we are. This is why things like a third order. Some of you, I think, have told me you're third order Carmelites. There are third order Franciscans, third order Dominicans, you know. Uh, these, these are people coming together, seeking a deeper spiritual life, and they need the support of one another. I live in a community. You know, I live with a number of brothers and priests. Um, and so we come together so that we could share works of prayer, works of the, of, uh, the apostolate mission to the poor and so on, uh, evangelization. And so we need that. We need those who can help us challenge us to be better, okay? That's uh, something that we sometimes overlook, the importance of that, okay? Particularly, she said, people who are more advanced than we are, people whom, from whom we can learn their example, their teaching, their inspiration to us, okay? That's very, very important. They're a great help, all right? And uh, they help us to, to know ourselves and uh, to know the ways that lead to God. So, to associating with good people. Another thing she stresses is um, the need for perseverance. 
Um, this was a distinct emphasis of St. Teresa, particularly important in times of aridity, aridity or dryness in prayer. You know, we're going to be talking tonight um, when we start the, the fourth mansion, we'll talk about the dark night experience. So I don't want to get into that too much now. But even before you get to that experience, which is quite um, distinct, okay, it's a very distinct experience, all right? You begin to be tested every now and then with dryness in prayer. God takes away the consolation, and it's very difficult to pray. Remember we, we said last night when we dealt with the life of St. Teresa, even when she said, I'd rather do a thousand other things than try to pray when I have this dryness. Do you ever feel that way? Hmm? Um, you know, maybe you go through dryness and you don't want to pray. Why? Because if God doesn't give me that nice consolation, that good feeling, I don't want to pray. Hmm? And how many people get very attached to that good feeling? Um, we'll talk about that, as I said, tonight when we talk about the dark night. But the need for perseverance, St. Teresa says. Remember she herself, remember, had given up mental prayer? Remember that time she made the decision? She said, I'm not good at it. Uh, you know, I'm not honoring God, so I'll give it up. And she said it was worst, one of the worst decisions she ever made in her life, to abandon prayer because prayer is needed to keep us going. You know, we need to pray. Uh, remember some years ago when they had that uh, the expression went around about God is dead? Remember that? That was um, uh, from a guy by the, the name of Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. He was, a, he was a German philosopher, and he said, well, for all practical purposes, God isn't dead, but for all practical purposes, people never think about him, you know. Uh, they asked a hippie at the time, do you think that God is dead? And he, he had a great insight. He said, no, God isn't dead. He's just not among the top 40. Hmm? <laughs> And that's where God is in a lot of lives. He's not in the top 40. Hmm? And so we need to put him numero uno. Remember that? Huh? And so, um, but there was one response to that God is dead movement that I saw on a bumper sticker. And it struck me so much. It said, my God is alive and well. I just spoke to him this morning. See, so if you're talking to God in prayer, you know God is alive. You also know you're alive, too, because you're talking to him. So we will have trials of dryness. And God has a reason to take away the sweetness from time to time. Okay? Um, and when you get to the dark night experience, that's more profound, that dryness. But let's keep going here. Um, remember, she had given up mental prayer. And it was a mistake. She realized it. Um, she thought it was humility, but it was foolishness to not pray. You know, God is alive and well. I just spoke to him this morning. Um, people at this stage are still attracted by the pleasures of the world. They don't avoid those occasions of sin. They still commit venial sins, even deliberately. They find it difficult to let go of the esteem of the world. We get caught up in worldly values. That's why if you follow Christ, your whole set of values begins to change. What was very important at one point in your life, after a while, it doesn't mean anything. You know, it changes. Um, we selfishly cling to friends and so on, political connections. They unreasonably fear doing penances. That's one thing that a person at this point fears doing penance, okay? They're tempted to go back to the world. Remember the Israelites and their journey in the desert. How often they told Moses, remember they were tested 10 times, they failed all 10 tests. And how many times they told Moses, why did you take us out here in the desert? We had our flesh pots and everything, and cucumbers and everything back in Egypt. We'd rather be slaves back there and have that, you know, those things we wanted than be out here in this desert. And so, the soul that's journeying on the spiritual journey is going to go through trials like that. You know, maybe I should have stayed in the world. I would have been happier, you know. Hang in there and you'll find a happiness you never thought was possible. Okay. Nobody can make you more happy than Jesus Christ. 
I assure you of that. Hmm? St. Teresa then views this person in the second mansion as only a child. They're still children. The spiritual life, by the way, if you compare it almost to natural life, there has to, you have a, a pre-born time, the pre-born child in the womb of the mother. Birth is the, is the beginning of life outside the womb. We know there's life for nine months already. But life outside the womb requires a birth. And conversion is like that birth, okay? We go from pre, from a uh, life in the womb to life in the world outside, all right? So we have a kind of spiritual birth in conversion. And uh, uh, so if it, if it happens to an adult, uh, maybe the adult was baptized as a child. Maybe they're baptized at the time of their conversion. But they still are a child. And you know, we remain a child for relatively about 12 years until we hit puberty, all right? And we begin to change at that point. Um, so so St. Teresa says that the, the person is only a child in the practice of virtues, such as humility, obedience, love, and patience, okay? Of these virtues, she said, they have not yet learned to walk. In fact, they have only just been born. Okay, so even a person in this second mansion, he says they are still children. She insists that these persons must not lose heart. Don't give in to discouragement. Remember, discouragement is one of the devil's big tools. Okay, he tries to discourage us to say, well, you can't do this. And the grace of God, we can do anything. Okay. Um, they must continue making serious efforts towards progress. Good desires and perseverance eventually lead them to discover that the Lord, as she said, is a good neighbor. Okay. Um, now, in this second stage, God permits the devil to attack that soul very fiercely, all right? Um, in fact, people in the second mansion will suffer greater attacks by the devil than even people in the first mansion. Why? I think it's because in the first mansion, they are so fragile. Okay, these souls that have just come off a conversion. They're so fragile that God protects them in an extra way. But as they get into the second mansion and they're beginning to take some steps, God allows them to endure more trials, so to toughen them up for their virtues to grow. Remember, it's like, you know, when you uh, um, inject a kind of, uh, let's say, some kind of anti-germ, uh, uh, you know, in the system, okay? You actually put some of the actual germ into the system, and then the immune system attacks that and builds up an immunity to that particular illness. So, you know, a lot of the vaccinations that we have, okay? operate on that basis. So God allows the devil to give us a hard time so that by resisting him, we grow stronger in virtue, okay? And um, uh, now remember this, the devil can only disturb us to the degree that God allows us to be disturbed. There's a little story about St. Francis where the devil appeared to him and uh, he said to, you know, he threatened to beat St. Francis up. And St. Francis said, you can't do anything to me. You can't do anything that God doesn't permit you to do. And if God permits you to do it, I'm not going to take it coming from you. I'm going to take it coming from God. That must have humbled the devil. Huh? <laughs> he likes to think he's, you know, you know somebody very important. Um, so the devil can only harm us, can only do any kind of disturbance to us, to the degree that Jesus allows it. Otherwise, he can't do it. He can, you know, make a lot of noise. He can threaten and everything else, see? So God allows people in this second mansion to experience a bit more of Satan's trials so as to spur them on, to grow, to purify them. Because the more you resist evil, just like that anti uh, let's say uh, some kind of germ 
you know, you get a vaccination for that. That resists the evil of that particular illness, okay? And so it is that God allows the person to, to um, experience this. See, if the devil sees that a person is capable of great spiritual growth and progress, then he will try as much as he can, you know, to stop that person, okay? Um, remember, the devil can gauge a certain amount of spiritual potential in people. That's why I remember the little flower when she was just a little girl, the, the, the little devils that came around and tried to frighten her. When she would look at them, they ran away. Hmm? Okay. Um, I use an example. I'm, I'm sure many of you remember the name Casey Stingle. Used to be the manager of the Yankees years ago. And uh, there was a, a reporter was asking him about two young ball players that he had on the team who were, you know, like 20 years old. And uh, Casey Stengel said, uh, when that young man there, the first one in, uh, in 20 years, he's going to be a superstar. And then he pointed to the other guy, he said, in 20 years, he's going to be 40. <laughs> in, other words, in other words, he could see the potential. One guy had the, was showing the potential of being a great star, the other guy going to be mediocre. And... Well, if, if we humans can judge that, certainly Satan can judge that, all right? And um, he also knows that if this person with potential becomes solidly rooted, like gets to the third mansion, this guy's going to cause him a lot of trouble. So he tries to destroy him or discourage him when he is still fragile, okay? Um, one especially subtle temptation that the devil uses, okay, um, to remind the person of everything he or she is, has to give up. That's one temptation the devil uses. Uh, St. Augustine went through that, you know, before his conversion. I always call him the patron saint of the playboys because he lived with one woman, he had a child with one woman, then he lived with another woman, you know, and for 12 years, Every day he prayed, Jesus, give me chastity, but not yet. In other words, in other words, he was not sure he was ready to give up his sinful life. And he said his, his passions would talk to him. And they would say to him, how are you going to live without us? And he didn't know. Until one day he was in a garden and he heard these kids playing in the next garden and they were using a little rhyme. In Latin, tole et relege, tole et lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he said, what children's game has those words? He ran in the house and he unrolls a scroll of the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. And his eyes fell on chapter 13, where it begins, now is the hour for you to rise from sleep. And he begins to read down there and said, make no provision for the deeds of the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was his answer. It was Christ. And so his 12 years of praying finally bore fruit. Give me chastity, but not yet. See, but that temptation, how can you live without us? It's a big temptation. Same thing happens, by the way, in religious life, you know. Person being called to religious life or the priesthood, you know, especially with the question of celibacy. How are you going to live celibate life? You don't want to do that. You miss all the pleasures of married life. So it becomes a temptation. And, um, and so uh, that, that is one of the, the most subtle temptations the devil uses. He makes the joy of this life almost seem eternal. It'll never end. You'll always have this pleasure and happiness. We won't. Anything can happen, right? You can get sick. You lose your money, whatever. So many things can go wrong. Okay, so, um, so he stresses the eternal nature of earthly pleasure. See? To oppose the devil's temptation, St. Teresa teaches, the soul must resolve never to submit to defeat. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. I've had too much. I can't take it. Keep going. God will gradually show that soul how empty the pleasures of the world are really are. 
And uh, God lets the soul see that he is the only security and rock foundation. It's Jesus himself. Okay? So, um, even if the, if the soul should fall into mortal sin, okay, there's no reason to be discouraged, to despair, to give up. Rather, begin again, you know. In fact, uh, St. Paul says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And St. Augustine said, yes, even our sins. Now, he was, he had lived a very sinful life. And what does he mean by that? Even our sins work together for good. Well, it makes you more humble because you realize, well, I'm a sinner. Jesus, when they wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery, you remember they asked him, is it right to do this or not? He said, let the one among you who has no sin cast the first stone. And what did he do? It's the only time the gospel says he wrote anything. He wrote in the dirt. And Bishop Sheen said he wrote, you know, to one guy, adulterer. And the guy realized he committed adultery, he dropped the stones and walked away. Another one, he said, thief. The guy remembered he was a thief. He dropped the stones and walked away. And another one, you know, murderer. And he dropped the stones and walked away. So our sins can remind us of our sins and to be more humble, to be also more trusting in God and not in ourselves. We need that. That's, see how humility is being formed within the person? Okay. When we realize our weakness, that's why this self-knowledge comes through our experiences that we try to live, you know, the way God wants us. St. Teresa cautioned about consolation, all right? Uh, we'll talk, as I said, when we deal with the dark night tonight with this. She said that to persevere, especially in times of dryness in prayer, don't give up. It's like passing through a tunnel. The tunnel may seem endless, but eventually you get to the other side. And um, she warned specifically against making consolations and sweetness the foundation of our prayer life, or even, you know, the way we gauge whether we're living a good life. Do I have a lot of consolation? If I do, I must be holy. No, that's not, that's not the real norm of holiness. Holiness is doing God's will. That's holiness. Loving God, you know, with all our heart, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's holiness, not how much I feel. Hmm? Um, feelings are the least accurate gauge of progress. And many people do give up their prayer life when they don't get the sweetness anymore. Don't do that. You got to keep going. The sweetness will come back. Hmm? Um, so we need courage. She finally gives three little uh, pieces of advice in this second mansion. First of all, to embrace the cross of Christ. This is our weapon. Huh? And, um, and even, she said, to become generous in welcoming hardships. Now, that's difficult. That's a very difficult thing to do. But she talks about the cross of Jesus. Secondly, she said, conform yourself to God's will, okay? Like I told you, Mother Teresa would say, uh, take what God gives and give what God takes with a big smile. So conforming ourselves to the will of God in daily fidelity. Uh, beginners, she said, must learn to be resolved to do God's will. And finally, she said, we have to learn to place our trust in God's mercy. Not being presumptuous, you know, but knowing that God does love us. You know, that's one thing that you can't miss when you read the diary of St. Faustina. She keeps stressing the Lord's words, you know, trust me. In fact, he said, it's the chosen souls that do not trust him that offend him the most. He expects from those he loves to learn to trust him. Okay, let's try to get into something on this third mansion, all right, where we're moving ahead now. This is where, this is where the person, by the time you get to the end of the third mansion, this could be probably the longest mansion people are in. When you enter into it, you still have a lot of that, I loving God for my own sake. But starting to reach the point, especially by the end of this third mansion, I'm loving God for his sake. If you want to, St. Bernard said, if you want to have a life of true virtue, you must reach 
that love of God for his sake. Okay? That's the sign of a mature uh, spiritual life. Okay? So what about this third, the, uh, third mansion here? St. Teresa says that if someone has survived the temptations and the trials of the second mansion and perseveres, they will come to the third mansion. Okay? Um, okay. This is where, again, that filial love, loving God for his own sake, begins to happen. Now, the person in the third mansion is characterized, starting to be characterized by a strong desire not to offend God. Remember I spoke to you yesterday, or was it earlier today, about that gift of the Holy Spirit called the fear of the Lord. Uh, Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the first, this is why the, the theologians, fathers of the church, were convinced that that gift, the fear of the Lord, that gratitude to God, that he is all good, He's worthy of all my love. This is the first of the sanctifying gifts of the Holy Spirit that begins to work in us. And that's the gift that produces this gratitude, you know, and um, to, to loving God for his sake. Okay? It helps us to become uh, very self-forgetting, less selfish, more giving, more wanting to honor the Lord. Okay? Um, they make a sincere attempt in this third mansion even now to begin to avoid venial sin. Why? Because there's more love in the person. Okay? Up until now, there's been a lot of self-love. I love God for my sake. I need him. Now, all of a sudden, I'm loving God for his sake. And so even little things that offend God, I don't want to offend him with. See, because I'm becoming more sensitive was love, see? And so I, uh, I begin to experience this kind of um, love for Jesus. This conscience of the person starts to become more sensitive, more tender, okay? And that indicates a person is making progress. They begin, you know, things that they, actions that they would have done without thinking about it, cursing at somebody, uh, treating them uh, rudely and uh, you know, anger all the time and so on, which they would have done maybe in that second mansion without thinking about it. All of a sudden now, they begin to realize that's not the way Jesus wants me to live. That's not what he taught me, see? So all of a sudden, a love starting to enter into the soul. And when you are motivated by love, what before would have seemed much more difficult to do it because you know this is what Jesus wants me to do, but I don't feel like that. I, I'm only loving him for my sake. Um, this makes me feel very uncomfortable to do that. All of a sudden, doing it out of love, it becomes something more attractive. I want to do it because I want to love Jesus. Okay? So there's a change beginning to happen, and that's a very crucial time going from that love of God for my sake to love of God for his sake, okay? And it's called also a reverential fear. I reverence the Lord very, very beginning, very, very much. St. Teresa said one venial sin that's deliberate can do greater harm than all the forces of hell combined. So we want to avoid even venial sin. She indicates that many people even religious and as well as lay people, do reach the third mansion, okay? There are many souls, such souls in this world. And uh, her examples of progress, you know, there's many of them which we will be looking at of how a person can progress. She describes some of the signs of progress. She said, people in the third mansion avoid committing even venial sins especially working on deliberate venial sins, right? Why? Because love is growing, and love makes them sensitive. I don't want to even offend God in a small way. He's all good. He's worthy of all my love. They begin to accept penances, like they'll do some fasting, some self-denial in Lent, and so on, okay, which they would not have given up, done before. They um, spend hours sometimes in prayer, recollection. They'll go to a retreat. Here you are in a weekend. 
doing a retreat here, right? Um, practices of piety, doing the rosary, maybe the stations of the cross, visits to the Blessed Sacrament, holy hours. These are beginning to mature, to develop within them. Why? Because they're expressions of love, see? And that's very, very important. Um, they use their time well. They avoid unnecessary business or worldly distractions. For example, TV. I read, I heard recently, the average American spends five hours a day watching television. We don't have TV in our, our houses, you know. Uh, it's a great piece, a lot of peace without having to watch TV, you know. But you got to be careful how much time. Now, I'm not saying there's not a proper relaxation, especially EWTN. Huh? I mean, <laughs> I could recommend uh, one program on there anyway. Uh, I, I have known the, uh, the host of that program all my life, so I... Uh, <laughs> So I don't want to say that there's not a room, you watch a ball game or something like that, it could be relaxing. But to, to overdo it, to you know, just have more and more and more, you know, you're watching commercials, you know, that's how desperate it gets. Um, it's very important that we use our time. Bishop Sheen had a big thing with priests, you know, when he would say sometimes on a priest retreat, you would encourage them to make a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament. And some of them were not open to it. They said to him, you mean I got to go waste an hour in church? Waste an hour before Christ in the Blessed Sacrament? He said, we don't waste enough time watching television, reading a newspaper. Hmm. So making good use of your time can be very important. You'll find out you have a lot more time than you realize, okay? Um, use your time well. They practice works of charity toward their neighbors. Now, this is important, okay? They're beginning to move away from, your, from themselves. See, one of the things that is so prevalent in our American society right now is what we call narcissism. You remember the story of Narcissus in the Greek mythology there, huh? You know, he was the young man who went down by the lake. He looks in the lake and he sees his own image and he fell in love with it. Then he fell in the lake. He got all wet. And narcissism is this self-focus, which is so prevalent in our society. And listen, uh, you know, treat yourself to anything you want and uh, uh, just enjoy yourself in life. That's not what we're here. We're not here just to enjoy ourselves. We're here to carry out God's will. Why did God make me? God made me to know him, to love him and to serve him in this world so that I might be happy with him forever in the next. You know? I always tell people, you've got to remember where you're going. And that's, that's the, the destination I learned a long time ago. God put me here to know him and to love him and to serve him in this world so that I might be happy with him forever in the next. Maybe I'm sure some of you have heard me over the years tell the story about that absent-minded professor who was getting on a train in Boston. You know, the poor man could not find his ticket. He's going through his suit jacket, his pants and everything, pockets, and a big line of people is starting to form. They're getting restless. And the conductor's there, and he thinks he recognizes this, this guy. Aren't you Professor so-and-so from the university over here? And he said, yes, I am. Oh, Professor, look, it's, it's pretty obvious. You, you, I'm sure you're an honest man. It's obvious you can't find your ticket. I trust you. Why don't you just get on a train? So when you find, I'll come by later on. When I come by, if you find a ticket, I'll punch the ticket. You know, Professor said, I can't do that. I can't get on this train until I find my ticket. He said, I got to remember where I'm going. <laughs> remember where you're going. <laughs> What's your final destination? Where do you want to be? Don't you want to be with the Lord in heaven? Don't forget that. Because everything you do is measured by that. Is it bringing me to my final destination? So practices of charity toward your neighbor, very important. You know, maybe work in a food shelter, visit the shut-in people, go shopping for people who need help. I wrote that book on what to do when Jesus is hungry. 
It's all on the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And, you know, we're going to be judged on that. If you read, remember that parable in Matthew's gospel? On the last day, everyone will be there, and Jesus will divide us between, you know, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will say to those, to the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, gave me something to drink. When did we do that, Lord? As long as you did it. For one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. Then I say to the goats, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was, I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. Lord, when did, when didn't we do that for you? If you didn't do it for the least of my brothers and sisters, you didn't do it for me, huh? So we will be judged on that, all right? So learn about the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, because this is, I think, what the Pope is talking about when he said we have to make the gospel. It's not enough with evangelization of words. We have to be promoting the gospel indeed. And it's the works of mercy that express our love, you know, and, uh, and, and so very important. By the way, the name of that book is um, What to Do When Jesus is Hungry. Some little boy down in Tampa, Florida, he picked the book up and he opens it up and he goes, oh, he says, I thought this was a cookbook. You know, what to do. <laughs> what to do when Jesus is hungry. Huh? So he thought it was a cookbook. Yeah. We got a big laugh out of that one, huh? That kid. Okay. So they are, uh, let's keep going. A couple of other things they do. Works of charity. They're careful in their speech. They avoid gossip harsh criticisms and criticalness and so on. They're careful in their dress, the way they dress, modesty, you know, not unbecoming styles. And finally, they're careful in the government of their household if they have one. They have a proper concern and care for their children. Um, a sense of justice, responsibility, and order. And that's important, to have a certain sense of order in our lives. See, that comes from a maturity, a maturity to take responsibility for those whom I may have an obligation to direct, okay? She goes into now a couple of uh, different things, st statements that she makes. Maybe I can just do a few of these, and then we'll have to take our break, all right, to get into the holy hour. She doesn't say a whole lot about prayer directly. Remember those, those three stages of prayer, prayer of the lips, prayer of the mind, prayer of the heart, actually correspond somewhat to these first three mansions. Okay, by the time you get to the third mansion, you have attained a kind of affective prayer to talk to God in your own words, all right? St. Teresa then doesn't say much about prayer here, but she talks a great deal about doing the will of our Heavenly Father. She, says the, she said, one of the things she says is, the flesh is weak. St. Teresa says in the first three mansions, okay, um, weak and sinful human nature proves to be a burden. She called it a, like a, a heavy load of dirt. In other words, because we're not used to discipline, we're not used to virtue, we're, we're used to a lot of self-love, you know, it takes us a while to outgrow that, to be purified of that, to put things in order in our hearts. Once you get into that fourth mansion, she said, it'll be different. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will take over and you will experience a good order in your soul, resulting in a greater degree of personal and inner freedom. See, this is where that experience is very, very important, okay, uh, to... Um, to become free through that discipline.